1961, the space race was underway, U.S. versus Russia, and Russia won by putting cosmonaut Yuri Garrigan into space. He was the first man in space. And at the time, the Soviet premier, the leader, was a man named Nikita Khrushchev. And as he was commenting on this, he said these words, Gagarin flew into space, but he didn't see any God there. So that was, that was his way of, of saying, here's how we know there is no God. We have gone where no man has gone before. And guess who wasn't there? God wasn't there. Therefore, there must be no God. Well, C.S. Lewis, who was a literary, uh, literature professor at Oxford, former atheist, converted to Christianity, became an apologist, responded, and Lewis loved science fiction. He wrote some science fiction works on his own, so he took interest in these things. And he wrote an essay called The Seeing Eye. And he says this, he says, The Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Then he goes on to give an illustration, to sort of dismantle that idea. He says, Looking for God by exploring space is like reading or seeing all of Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters. And he goes on to say, Listen, Shakespeare is all over his place. Right? He, he's, he's the author. He's in every single story. But if he were to reveal himself, what, what would Shakespeare need to do? He would have to write himself into the story. He says this, God does the same thing with us. He writes himself. The author reveals himself to us by entering into the story. That's how God has revealed himself to us. Then he goes on and he, he remarks on why uh, Lewis says, here's why I'm not really a good authority on what it means to search for God. He says, I can talk to you about God revealing himself to us, but I can't really talk to you about searching for God. And here's why, quote, that's because I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter. I was the deer. And I'm very thankful that's how the first meeting occurred. So the reason I can't talk to you about looking for God is because I wasn't looking for him at all. He found me. And as we, as we think about Christmas, as we think about Advent, and what we've been walking through the last few weeks, isn't that what God is doing at Christmas? What we're saying is the, the author, the grand author, is not just distant, he's entering into the story. In the last two weeks, we've seen this anticipation of this. We've seen in the account of Mary, an unmarried teenage virgin, she's, she's told that she'll give birth to the Son of the Most High. We just read that as our call to worship. Zechariah, we saw last week, an old priest with a barren wife, and they're told that the Redeemer is coming. He's coming. The author is entering into the story. And then we get to Luke chapter 2, our text for this morning, and we see that he has come. We see the announcement of the Savior entering into our story. But he's not just entering in to say hello. Shakespeare could have done that. That would have been weird. But hey, here's a character off to the side. That would be funny. God's not just entering into the story to say, hey, here I am. He has a purpose. And Lewis knew that purpose for himself. His purpose, just as it was to hunt after C.S. Lewis, just as if it was to pursue him, that's why he came to us. He entered into the story to pursue you and me. And so as he enters into this story, what we see in our text this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, is this announcement to a group of shepherds. And as we, as we look through this, we're going to see three things that we're going to pull out of this passage. The first thing we see about this announcement of the author entering into the story is great glory. 
We see that in verses 8 through 9. Then we see great joy in verses 10 through 14. And also in verse uh, 14, we see great peace. Great glory, great joy, and great peace. And then verses 15 through 20, we get to consider what does that mean for us? How did these people respond to that good news? What we didn't read is verses 1 through 7, which are important. So if we uh, reflect on this for a little bit, here's the context of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Jesus has been born. And he's been born in Bethlehem, which is extremely important because Micah chapter 5, verse 2, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, said that the Savior, the promised one, the Messiah, will be born in the city of David. And as the author enters the story, the question is, okay, so how will this birth be announced? We, we love birth announcements in our culture, don't we? We have, our, our family always gave us, and we have many, many children, uh, those storks, you know, the yard storks? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, four of you, that's good. Yeah, all my family who gave it to me, they're like, yeah, we know. You put it in our yard. You put a stork there, and then the, the sign is sort of detachable, and it has the time, you know, and the weight. All our kids are like, you know, 15 pounds, you know, just beasts, you know. And you keep that so you can announce to the neighborhood, oh, that's sweet, they had a, they had a child. Or, or gender reveal parties. There were none of those, right, in first century Israel. No social media posts. Uh, we were in New York over the summer, or in May, and while we were there for my wife's birthday, like a, a day trip, we, uh, apparently, a royal birth took place. The, let me see if I get this right, because I'm American, so I don't know. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex welcomed their firstborn child in the early morning of May 6th. And as we were walking around downtown New York City in Times Square, where there's screens everywhere, the royal birth is being announced, right? This is a, a worldwide thing. Well, Jesus' birth is royal as well, but it's a different kind of royalty. And because it's a different kind of royalty, it has a unique announcement to an unlikely audience. It's not broadcast all over the world. Instead, God chooses poor shepherds in the middle of the night, outside in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. And the first thing we see as we look at this announcement is this great glory. Look again at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now before we consider this glory, let's just stop for a second, because this is so foreign to us, and consider why would God choose a group of shepherds to announce this to? We don't understand shepherding. As far as I know, there's not a big market for that in greater Boston. Maybe out in western Massachusetts like where the hobbits live, there's shepherding, right? I don't know a lot about shepherding, but the reality is, is first century shepherds had a bad reputation. They were considered thieves, so much so that their testimony was not considered reliable in a legal court. They were known for swapping other people's sheep. On top of this, because of the nature of their job, they couldn't participate in this, the, the temple worship because of the ceremonial law. They were handling animals that were considered unclean. Right? They would handle dead animals. So not only were they social outcasts, they were also religious outcasts in a sense. Clearly the, the hours aren't good. They're out in the middle of the night. The pay wasn't great. They were at the very bottom of the social scale. Yet, this is the group of people that God chose to announce the birth of the king of the universe. And that leads us to ask, okay, why would God do this? Well, what is God showing us? We've seen this these last couple weeks. He's showing us that his kingdom is not like our kingdoms. God's idea of greatness is not like our idea of greatness. Right? 
We saw this in Mary. What does Mary say in Luke chapter 1? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Luke chapter 2 verse 8. Jesus was born not in the palace. He was not laid in a golden crib, but he's laid in a feeding trough for animals. See, God is showing us that true greatness isn't found in riches or high social positions, but in humility. Jesus would later say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican pastor, was reflecting on this, this whole idea of the humility surrounding the birth of Christ. And he says, God is no respecter of people. He looks at the hearts of men and not at their incomes. A lowly dwelling place and coarse food and a hard bed are not pleasing to the flesh and blood, but they are the portion which the Lord Jesus himself willingly accepted from the day of his entrance into the world. Listen to this. Wealth ruins far more souls than poverty. When the love of money begins to creep over us, let us think of the manger at Bethlehem. I would add, let us think of the humble servants. Let us think of the Virgin Mary. Let us think of Elizabeth and Zechariah and of him who was laid in the manger. Such thoughts, Ryle says, may deliver us from such harm. God is showing us that humility is true greatness. And then in verse 9, we see this display of glory. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. Now, I want you to stop and just imagine this for a moment. You're out in the field in the middle of the night. You're a shepherd. Maybe you're you're surrounding a, a fire. You're chatting with your fellow shepherds. It's dark. It's relatively quiet. You're also a Jew. So you've been raised to understand the Old Testament scriptures. You know that angels have appeared to people. You know that there have been visions and encounters of the glory of God. Then all of a sudden... Bursting into the night, there is an angel. And the text says that the the glory of the Lord surrounds them. How would you respond? Think about that for a moment. Now, we might think their initial response would be curiosity. Oh, wow, what is this? Or excitement. Oh, man, this this is pretty cool. You know, take out our phones and snap a picture. But how do they respond? The Bible tells us they are filled with great fear. And this is important to understand. It's not because they think they've seen a ghost. They know exactly what they've seen. They knew their Old Testaments well. They've seen encounters like this before. And this is not the kind of fear that's, uh, that we talked about in the Proverbs, if you're here for that series. This idea of reverential awe of God that is the beginning of wisdom. This is terror. Their response to the glory of God is the right biblical one. They're fearful. They're filled with great fear. And we see this, we've seen this already in Luke. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12. Great fear fell upon him when he saw this angel. What, is the, what does Gabriel tell Mary in Luke chapter 1? Do not be afraid. So, so why is fear always the response? Here's the reason. It's so important for us. Because when unglorious people like you and me encounter the glory of God, we are confronted with our own insufficiencies. And that's what's happening to these shepherds. And we see this all over the Bible. I want to give you a few examples. One is of Moses. This is a a famous one. 
In Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 20, listen to what Moses requests. He says, Moses said, please show me your glory. What a great prayer. God, I want to see your glory. Moses knew God well. The Bible tells us he was a friend of, of God. God spoke to him, but he had never seen him face to face. So Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will claim, proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom, on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So that's the ESV. Let me give you the KSV, the Kevin Standard Kevin Sanders version, or the Kevin Standard version, that works too, right? What God is saying is, listen, Moses, I appreciate that you want to see my glory, but you are sinful, and I am perfect in holiness and glory, and if you see me face to face, I will just melt your face right off, like end of Indiana Jones style, right? That's what God is saying. Another story, Isaiah chapter 6. This is very similar to the angels in Luke chapter 2. Isaiah sees a vision of the glory of God, and the angels are declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response is, oh, is not, oh man, this is awesome. Isaiah's response, Isaiah 6.5, is, Woe is me. Translation, I deserve to die. For I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this is heavy stuff, but the glory of God confronts us with our sinfulness. And if we skip over this part, what we like to do is go straight to the joy and peace of Christmas. But if we skip over the glory of God and our sinfulness, then we will not rightly understand the joy and peace that's offered to us in Christ. See, this wasn't the way it was intended to be. God created us to be in his presence. He created us to enjoy his glory. And that lasted for two chapters in the Bible. And then we rebelled against him. We chose sin over God and his glory. We chose lesser glories. We worshiped lesser things. And so God in his justice and mercy and holiness has separated himself from us. So much so that even if an angel gets a glimpse of a person gets a glimpse of the glory of God in an angel, they're struck with terror, and rightfully so. John Calvin says, Hence the dread and amazement with which, a scripture, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men and women were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men and women are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. That's a question for us, isn't it? Have we contrasted ourselves with the majesty and glory of God? Because we cannot know the true joy of Christmas until we understand the terror of sin. We deserve just judgment because we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've said this quote from Thomas Watson often in our gathering. If sin is not bitter, then Christ will not be sweet. We will not understand the joy of salvation until we know who we are in the glory of God, in the sight of the glory of God. So do you know who God is? Do you understand that God is glorious and holy? 
Do you you know who you are in light of who God is? That you are sinful and in need of the good news of the gospel. And listen, if that sounds intense to you, if that sounds heavy-handed, listen, the fact that God is here announcing this to a group of shepherds in the middle of the night shows that God doesn't want it to be that way either. The author has entered into the story because he doesn't want to leave us in the terror and shame and pain of our sin. He pursues us. And so thanks be to God that he doesn't, the the chapter doesn't end here. Imagine that. The shepherds were keeping watch over their sheep by night. An angel of the Lord appeared and they were terrified. Let's pray. Right? That's not how it ends. And that leads us to number two. Not only do we see great glory here, we see great joy. Great joy. So the angel immediately says to them, verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So while the shepherd's fearful response is right, while they recognize, just like Isaiah, just like Moses, oh my goodness, is God coming to judge me? Because I know that's what I deserve. The angel steps in and says, no, no, no. There's actually a reason that you don't have to fear anymore. Why not? He has some news. He's going to tell them why. He has good news for them. This is where we get our word gospel. And what's this news going to do? It's going to replace this great fear with great joy. Notice that. He says good news, the gospel. He's about to tell us what that is. But the joy that the good news will bring is great. It's going to replace your fears. And who is this for? It's not just for this group of shepherds. It's not just for people, the, the, the nation of Israel. It's for all the people. It's for all nations. God is saying, I have come to redeem all people who would believe in me so they can enter back in to experience the goodness of my glory. Now, what is this news? This leads us to verse 11. This is a jam-packed verse, 19 words in English, packed with enough theology and Christology to keep our minds and hearts engaged for more time than we have. And let me just say this. By the way, God saw fit to, to give some really weighty theology and doctrine to a group of poor shepherds. God, God thinks that we can handle the deep things about who Jesus is, right? And so he tells them in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's chew on this for a moment. Let's unfold this verse. Notice what the angel says first. Unto you. The angel personalizes this announcement. It's not like news headlines that we uh, tend to read, which just tells us of something that's happening on the other side of the world, really doesn't have anything to do with us. No, the angel's saying, listen, to you as a group of shepherds, God is saying to us this morning, this announcement has everything to do with each and every one of us sitting in this room. This is for you and me. And he says, a Savior is born. What's a Savior? It's one who's going to come and rescue people, save them from their sins. And this, there's another reason I think God chose this group of shepherds to reveal this news. Think about the nature of their job. They kept sheep. And if you were a Jew, you knew that sheep were used for sacrifice. In fact, some scholars would say one of the reasons this group of shepherds was so close to Bethlehem is because their flock was going to be used in the temple sacrifice. There's an estimate that every year at Passover, some 
18,000 lambs were sacrificed. And so these shepherds would have been looking out on their flock. They wouldn't have understand the way we understand it. But being good Jews who knew their Old Testament would have been looking out on their flock that would have been used to, to, to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then there's this announcement from an angel saying, the promised one has come. The Savior has come. You remember what John said? John the Baptist, when Jesus came, he said, behold the what? What did he say? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I think it's reasonable to say that these shepherds, though they wouldn't have understand the way we would, they were starting to connect the dots. Maybe, maybe this is the one the Old Testament told us about. Maybe this is the one who's going to take away all our sins. And he is the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one who would deliver Israel. And the angel says, not only is the Savior the Christ, but he is also the Lord. He doesn't mean Lord as in master, though Jesus certainly is our master, but this points us to the name of God himself, Yahweh. The angel is saying, this Savior, the promised one from of old, is not just sent by God, but is God himself in the flesh to save you. The author has entered into the story. And he goes on to say, here's how you will know. A sign will be given to you. Verse 12. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. I love this because what the angel is saying is, listen, just so you know that you lowly shepherds, that this Savior can relate to you. This Savior wasn't born in a palace. He was born maybe just like you were. He was laid in a manger. Sinclair Ferguson paraphrases this thought here. He says, the Lord has come to redeem the poorest of the poor. You are poor men and you know that it is for your new, you know what it is for your newborn children to have little. Christ the Lord has come right down to your level. He has come from heaven empty-handed. Right? Jesus has come to be on our level that he may save us. What an astonishing thought that the one who spoke the universe into existence, that the one who upholds the universe with the word of his power, humbled himself to become one of us, to save us. And this thought is so overwhelming to the angels that one angel then turns into a multitude in verse 13. It's like he calls his backup singers. Like, we're going to get this house jumping, right? And they say, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Habakkuk 2.14 gives a prophecy that says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, that's exactly what started on Christmas. The floodgates of God's glory between heaven and earth are being opened. You know what a floodgate is? It's a, it's a giant gate in a river or a dam, and it's really used for three things. It shuts out, it admits in, or it releases the body of water. So what's happening on Christmas? God is saying, listen, you have been shut out from my presence because of sin, but I won't stand for it anymore. The floodgates are being opened. I'm entering in so that you could be admitted back in. I am releasing my glory, heaven on earth, so that you may know the Savior, so that you may have life, so that you may be brought back into my presence. And listen, the angels rejoice at this, and they're not even sinners, 
You think about that for a moment? They don't know what it's like to be outside of the glory of God. Yet they're so overwhelmed by this news, even though they're not recipients of it, that they respond by praising God in an unhindered way. Now here's the logic there. If the sinless angels who aren't even recipients of the salvation of Christ and the grace of God are that joyful, how much more should we, as we think about the Savior who is Christ the Lord, be overjoyed at what he's done for us, right? How does this work out in your life? Are you you deeply joyful because of what God has done for you in Christ? See, we love the word joy this time of year. It's a common word. It's But it seems like oftentimes it's connected with circumstances or just decorations or seasonal joy or or gift giving. All good things, but those things will not last. What the angel is saying is, now listen, Jesus brings joy because he is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He deals with your greatest problem, which is your sin problem. He will bring you back to God and in his presence there is fullness of joy. But also notice that this this joy is meant to dispel fear. This passage leads us to ask, what fears do you have that need to be replaced by joy in Christ? Do you notice what he says? He gives commands. He says, fear not, behold. Don't fear over here. Instead, look to Jesus. What are you fearful of? Are you fearful of rejection? The Savior has come so that you might be accepted and never let go, eternally accepted in Christ. You have no reason to fear rejection. Are you, are you afraid of the future? This Savior, who is the Christ, is also the Lord. He is sovereign over your future. It's in His hands. Are you afraid of death? We heard last week, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, friends, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who removes the penalty of death for you so that you will live eternally in Christ. We have nothing to fear. And listen, just to give you an example of how this works out, in Philippians chapter 1, we read of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. It's really a letter about joy. And he says this crazy thing in Philippians 1.21. He says, listen, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here's what he means. Here's, Here's how crazy Paul is in a good way. The joy of knowing Christ has been so uh, um, entrenched in his soul that he's in prison, he's chained up, he might get his head chopped off, maybe not, he might be released to go tell other people about Jesus, and here's how he's thinking. He's thinking out loud, listen, if I die, oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't I gain so much because I'd be in the presence of God? That would be awesome. He says, but... If I live, and if I get out of this place, wouldn't that be awesome too? Because then I would just get to tell everybody about Jesus and keep doing ministry for Jesus. That's crazy. He's saying, listen, you can kill me and I'd be joyful, or you can leave me here and I could be joyful, or you can leave me in this prison. His joy was, here's a great word, indomitable. You couldn't touch his joy. Because he was so secure in Christ. That is what is offered to us. Paul knew, and we can know, listen, the greatest thing that we need is Christ. And if we have that, nothing can take it away. And if that's true, then I don't need to fear rejection or future or poverty or death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the joy that is offered to us 
in the manger. See, the Savior has come that we who are lost in darkness may see light, that we who are distant from God's glory may be brought back in, that we who are just being crippled by our fears could have those fears replaced with this indomitable joy. That's what's offered to us at Christmas. But it actually gets even better because it goes on to say it's not only great joy, but still in verse 14, there's also offered to us great peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among among those with whom he is pleased. Now peace in the Bible is not this sort of general peacefulness or, or prosperity or life without trouble. Peace in the Bible means the end of enmity and warfare. And so if there is a a need for peace, that implies there's a conflict, right? And Luke's being intentional here. If you look back up, if your Bibles are open, or this is on the screen at verse 1, which we didn't read, Luke gives us some historical context. And he tells us, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. Okay, so he's giving us a little historical context here. Here's what we learned from this. We're reminded that the Jews are under Roman occupation. Caesar is ruling over them. They're not a free people. They're under captivity. A census also meant that a tax was coming, a heavy tax. Right? This meant that the government that was, uh, the Jews were under was a government that took from them in a heavy way. Caesar also considered himself divine. He, he said and thought he was a god. That's what Caesar would say. And he's most famous for, maybe you remember this from history, the Pax Romana a period of relative peace for the Roman Empire. The reason I say relative peace, and I would say peace, is because when you crucify people, when they do stuff you don't like, you can kind of get things done. So it wasn't really peaceful, but that was the idea. And so the result of that is the Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans all thought that their true and lasting peace would come from military or political leadership. And here's what I think Luke is saying. I think he's hinting at, listen, there is a king who is greater than Caesar. There is a true freedom for God's captive people. There is a kingdom that will not take from you, but will give to you. And there's a far greater peace than anything any kingdom or leader on this earth can offer. And here he is. It's Jesus. Jesus is our peace. Now, admittedly, I was reading this passage a couple weeks ago, one morning, and I closed, I read verse 14, thought about, oh, peace, that's great. I closed my Bible, and I opened up my AP News app, right? Which I do it in that order, so I don't lose my mind. And here's some of the the headlines I read, just just opening up the app. Sailor kills two civilians in U.S. shipyard. Many migrants drowned after Gambian boat capsizes. Where climate change is causing concern. Health fears surrounding frequent use of tear gas in Hong Kong. You know we could go on and on. I think there have been at least two more shootings since then, including the one in New Jersey this week. You can look at your own life and say, seriously? You're going to tell me about peace? Where is this supposed peace that these angels are talking about? And this does answer that question, but let's back up a little bit and say this. Our greatest conflict is not first and foremost out there. It's not other people versus God. It's us and God. And so as we talk about peace, we have to understand that before we we consider 
the pursuit of peace out there, we must let it work inward in us. You've, you've flown on a plane before and you've seen that safety thing at the beginning that none of us pay attention to, right? In the event that the air things fall down, what are you supposed to do? Put yours on first before you help other people, right? Same is true with peace. Our greatest issue is that we don't have peace with God. The reason there's no peace on earth is because there's no peace with God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how in the world does this message bring us peace? Well, friends, we have to view the manger that Jesus was born in in the shadow of the cross where Jesus died. Because just as Jesus was born, he was, he was wrapped up and laid in a wooden manger. Some 30 years later, he would be bound again and nailed to a wooden cross. And why would he do that? Here's why. This is the gospel message in some. Jesus came, was born as one of us, as well as fully God. He lived the life you and I could never live. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. Defeating sin and death, he rose from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven where he is now, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning until we await his return. And the reason that brings us peace is because Jesus did what we could never do. We could never lay down our life for our salvation because we're sinners. So Jesus did it for us. And so Paul says, by faith you are made righteous, you are declared innocent, and therefore you have peace with God. As we'll sing later, Charles Wesley's famous hymn, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, what? God and sinners reconciled. That's where our peace is. It's in Jesus. So where is your peace? Luke's audience, it was military rule for the Jews, it was... Um, a victory? Is it money? Is it success? Are you like these first century readers where you think we're coming in on election year? Something, something's going to happen that's going to bring peace and fulfillment in my life? Listen, whoever is leading our nation, they will not bring us lasting peace. Only Jesus can do that. But, but this doesn't mean we ignore all those headlines, does it? This doesn't mean we say, okay, we shouldn't care about peace out there. And I believe this announcement refers to both. Because as people are filled with the peace of God and reconciled to God in Christ, they are then empowered to go out and pursue peace with others. Romans 14, 19, after Paul spends just so much time laboring on the doctrine of the gospel, says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. Rebecca McLaughlin has written a wonderful book called Confronting Christianity. And here, listen to what she says on this. She says, At the cross... The most powerful man who ever lived submitted to the most brutal death ever died to save the powerless. The skewering of violence at the cross speaks to our most fundamental problem, which is not a lack of education, democracy, or opportunity, but the gruesome reality the Bible calls sin. And the strange claim of Jesus' resurrection offers us hope that the evil will not ultimately triumph. And that everyone who gives up his or her life to follow Christ will find it. This belief, when drunk of deeply, motivates action. It motivated Christians in the 4th century to create places where the sick and the poor could be cared for. Places we now call hospitals. 
It, it motivated Martin Luther King to believe that nonviolent resistance could overcome violent oppression. And it motivates Christians today to sacrifice themselves across the world in the service to others. As Isaac Watts says in Joy to the World, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And how does he do that? He redeems people to themselves. He makes peace with individuals, and they go out and pursue peace with others. And so that's our function as we, we eagerly await his return. And then lastly, how should we respond to all of this? Because then the angels just disappear. They're like, we're done. And we get to read what these shepherds did. They go in haste, verse 15 and 16. They immediately start telling others. And then we see three responses in verses 18, 19, and 20. We just want to consider this briefly. Look at verse 18. We see the people's response. And this is a group of people that they told, maybe on the way, maybe surrounding in Bethlehem. But we're told that they wonder. And they're amazed. But there's an implication here, as Luke writes. He's not saying that this in a positive way. He's saying they, they wondered, they thought, wow, that's crazy. But they didn't internalize it. They just moved on. And we're forced to ask ourselves, is that, is that the way we view this story? Hey, that's great for you. That's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Angels and glory and things like that. Babies and mangers. But then you just move on. Or maybe you think, I've, just, I've heard this so much, I'm just numb to it. We talk about this every Christmas. Right? Or maybe some of these people who heard these shepherds, they had a prejudice toward shepherds. What do you guys know? You're at the bottom of the social scale. Is that how you view Christianity or the gospel? Oh, that's just for weak people. And I believe Luke puts that there to say, listen, this is a common response, but it's not a complete response. Indifference is not the appropriate response. But then, Mary enters back into the story in verse 19. And we're told that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. See, to ponder means to put into context, to connect, to work something out. Like Psalm 119, she is unfolding the word of God. She's thinking deeply about this. Friends, if that's you and you're just like exploring Christianity and you're not sure about this, can I, can I just say that you owe it to yourself? to humbly consider the claims of the world's largest religion, right? By the way, Rome is gone and we're still here. So at least consider it, right? Don't just wonder and sort of move on. Think deeply about those things. And if you're here and if you're a Christian, listen, Mary models for us how we intake the word of God. She's chewing on it. She's digesting the word. She's meditating on it so that her soul treasure, treasures what she hears. Right? John Owen said, I love this illustration. He said, in the divine scriptures, there are shallows and there are depths. Shallows where the lamb may wade and depths where the elephant may swim. He's saying, listen, there's stuff in this book that people who are young, new to Christianity, maybe, maybe more, more simple in their thinking, can comprehend and grasp and delight in. And then there are depths where the oldest Christian, the most brilliant theologian, will never plumb the depths of. And friends, listen, at Christmas, in the incarnation, it's both. There's enough here for all of us to ponder and chew on. So respond like Mary and then lastly, we see the shepherd's response, verse 20. 
And they returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and had seen as it had been told them. These guys, just a few verses earlier, were terrified of the glory of God. Now they're joining in the chorus filled with joy and peace. Friends, this is what the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, does for those who believe his gospel. As we consider the author who has entered the story to pursue us, let's not merely wonder from a distance and then move on, but let's ponder these truths. Let's sink them deep in our minds and hearts in a way that leads us to faith and joy and to treasure Christ so that we could join in this chorus, a life of indomitable joy, a life of glorifying God, and a life of peace. Let's pray together.